0: Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson.
1: I'm Kate Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel.
0: Let's jump into the news. First up is the big news that Phoenix Live View 0.15.0 was released. Now, this is a huge release. It includes live uploads, which has been discussed for some time, along with some testing helpers. Chris McCord announced this, and you can check out the change log. And there's also a related live dashboard version bump, which is really just to pin it to this new version of LiveView. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to all that. But coming up next, right after the news, is our interview with Chris McCord about this new release. So stay tuned for that. And if you don't know Bob the Builder, Bob the Builder is an Elixir tool uh,
1: that is built to uh, basically build uh, the binaries for Elixir uh, and Erlang and also Docker images or container images. Uh, And so recently, Bob the Builder was updated to include Erlang documentation for OTP twenty three. If you don't remember, OTP twenty three started uh, started uh, emitting those documentation chunks in the same format that uh, Elixir you know supports for IEX and those helpful prints. Um, so it's very helpful to have that, and really happy that it's there. And so Bob the Builder again was updated to include those documentation chunks. So now now inside those containers, you can do like h colon Erlang and get some uh, get some helpful tips there. I uh, have some links in the show notes. And thanks, Voice Tech
0: Mock, for adding that uh, to the containers. Just to make you aware that Hex PM uses this Bob the Builder service and generates Docker containers for Erlang and for Elixir. And the Elixir is built on that version of the Erlang. So those are some very convenient Docker container images that you can just use for building your own projects on top of if you'd like to. So check those out, too.
2: There's a new Rebar 3 release for Erlang 3.14.2. With a number of improvements and fixes, check the show notes for a link to that.
0: The Erlang Solutions blog had a new post about a language called Caramel, which is an Erlang backend for the OCaml compiler that provides a fast type checker for Beam-based languages. It's interesting to me that there's been a lot of talk about static types on the Beam, and I'm very interested to see where all of this is going. Lastly, Claudio Ordelina created an example-driven step-by-step guide on how to
1: create uh, and how to build a custom Phoenix Live dashboard page. Uh, there was a recent update with Phoenix Live dashboard, by the way, where you can create your own pages in there for metrics or whatever you need to show. And so it's, it's early, but uh, Claudio has a great uh, blog post just illustrating what you would need to do in a real world app to get some uh, information up there.
0: Uh, so good job on the blog post. Really loved it. And that's it for the news. Today, we are really excited to be joined by Chris McCord. Now, if you're in the Elixir community, you know who Chris McCord is. And for those of you who are still just joining us in the Elixir community, Chris McCord is the creator and maintainer of Phoenix, the popular web framework that we're all using. And he's also the creator of LiveView. And he's written some of the books that people are often turning to. So we're really glad that he's able to come and join us today and talk about LiveView. And in particular, there was a recent release. It was LiveView 0.15.0, which was just released. And this includes a significant feature, uh, which was uploads. So before we jump into uploads, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me on. And maybe you could just kind of tell us a little about where you live and what kind of work you're doing.
3: Sure. Yeah, I live in Charlotte, North Carolina. I've been here for I think four years or so. Um, and, uh, typically what I do day to day is work on open source. So I work for a consultancy, uh, named Dockyard. We do Elixir uh, development. We also do design, but, uh, they pay me to work on open source about 75, percent of my time. So I do work on client work. I'm currently actually on a client project. So, um, 25% of the year I am billable, but it's uh, it's a good deal for me to kind of balance out my life open source wise and not, not flame out and, uh, also, Able to kind of stay in touch with like real world uh, use cases. So it's nice that, like, if I was purely on open source, I think I could get out of touch uh, with what's happening as far as like how companies are using Phoenix. So I spend my day either working on Phoenix or helping companies adopt Elixir and Phoenix.
0: When you're consulting with a company, are you helping them solve difficult technical problems or is it more like maybe offering some training, you know, helping people get up to speed or like what kind of responsibilities do you have there?
3: Yeah, so I'd say all of the above. Uh, and most of the time, it's solving technical challenges. Uh, it just really varies. Um, the current project I'm on, we're we're rewriting a, a Rails application into Elixir because of scaling issues. Uh, but you know, sometimes it's something super interesting, like you know, replatforming an entire product, or it's just you know, they have a JSON API that they want to make either faster or better. Code-wise, so kind of the consulting world, right? It's a varying mix, uh, mixed bag. But in general, it's usually I'm brought in kind of at the architecture level early on, and try to make things either make things right that are not right. If it's a uh, if they're coming in with a project, or if it's greenfield, you know, try to make things right from the beginning. And then uh, when I phase out, other that work alongside me, kind of uh, carry things
0: on. One of the things I've kind of always wondered is like when you're in a position like yourself, or like Jose Valim, who also consults and helps people is, you know, you're seeing code that, you know, it's from people like me, who's a a relative novice to Phoenix, as opposed to someone like yourself, right, who wrote the framework. And how do you balance that feedback that you give? You know, it's like, well, you know, maybe there's a way we could improve this here, you know, as opposed to saying, what the heck were you doing?
3: Yes, I mean, it's (laughs) definitely a balance. Uh, The funny thing is, like with Elixir, I think, you know, certainly we've seen, uh, you know, code that's you know, not ideal. Um, but it is funny that, you know, companies will often hire us just for an architecture review. Like they don't really need necessarily, you know, tons of help. They just want to make sure that what they've put together is, you know, a, a good foundation, especially cause you know, Elixir we're getting older now, but you know, early on, you know, it's early, early adopters or a, a startup that now suddenly has found success. And they just want to make sure they're in a good spot. Um, So it is funny that, you know, some of the reviews were like, I I start getting anxious because I'm not finding a lot of feedback to give. So it's not like, you know, normally I'm coming, I'm used to coming into a project and being like, wow, this is a disaster. Like just through my entire programming career. And like I said, not that we see everything that's perfect, but it is remarkable that you're, you know, the the majority of the feedback is like, yeah, this is mostly just pretty great. Um, Why did you hire us? No. uh, So it is, it's a good question though. I think, you know, that the tact, I think Jose has kind of done a f- like phenomenal job as far as how, in, how to deliver feedback in general from the open source side. And I think that's kind of a very similar way you give feedback to clients where, you know, constructive criticism. But I think, yeah, just not not attacking people is, is the key. And I think also just like being humble about it. Like, you know, I think, you know, in general, like we've all shipped really bad code, right? And it's like, we don't know the constraints that people were operating under. So if you were asked to you know, ship this feature by tomorrow, you're going to do everything you can to make it happen. And I've certainly worked on things where I'm like, oh God, you know, my, the Git history here is going to be, is going to, you know, be written down on the historical record forever. So I think a lot of things are, I try to view it under the light of like, you know, I've, I'm certainly responsible for things I'm not proud of. And uh, I think if you carry that forward, it's it's not too difficult to to give
2: feedback. I can appreciate that you and Jose both put some real world practice into these libraries. I remember a couple releases ago where Jose revamped the live view tests. And that was one of my complaints. Like I always had these tests that were like, check that there's a Phoenix submit on it, check that it has this string value on the attribute. And when that revamp came out, I was like, this is, this is beautiful. This is like, my only complaint is now fixed. This is awesome.
3: (laughs) That's all him. So I wrote the initial, the initial test stuff And then he, the first time he used it is that's, that's when all that, all that fell out. (laughs) Um, But I think, I think this is also important. He actually, the way that came about was actually using LiveView to build a real product. So I think this is, uh, you know, he was building Dashbit and I think it's, it's important to not just build. Uh, open source software. It's like actually use that. So he went to go use it in anger. And then he was like, okay, I'm like kind of what you just described, you know, uh, he's writing all these tests that are are brittle. Um, And it's it's amazing now that like anytime I have to write like a a dead view test, like it's like it feels just very subpar where you're like, I want all the guarantees that these things actually exist on the page.
0: Well, I'd love to jump in and now talk about live view uploads. So first, I got to say congrats on reaching that release milestone. Because I know like from my outside perspective, it's been in the works for a long time. And I'm just curious as to what some of the challenges have been to, you know, back from when you were talking about this at a previous conference saying, this is what we're working on to, you know, being able to deliver it now, like what that process has been like.
3: Yeah. So thanks for patiently waiting. Uh, I guess the broader community, people have actually been quite <laughs> like, they've clearly been waiting anxiously, but um, mm-hmm. it's been a long time. I I'm actually afraid to go check to see when I think it's been a few conferences probably. Um, but yeah, the, so the process, you know, it's one of those things that uh, we didn't know whether or not we wanted to solve this problem initially. And then we were like, okay, we need to solve it. Uh, and then coming out on the other side, it's like, I can't imagine not have, having not having delivered this um, because for a while we're like, well, you know, people can make it work. It's not that hard, but then there are all these edge cases where it becomes really difficult. So the way it started was uh, Gary Rennie on the Phoenix team kind of bounced this idea of how we would go about implementing it, implementing it. And I'm trying to make this a short uh, story, the shortest story possible. So it, it becomes a hard problem to solve, Harder than you'd think because, you know, the live view is an active WebSocket connection to the server. So ideally, anything happening on the server uh, is going to happen on that same instance that you have that WebSocket connected, connection to. So why uploads are hard is if you formally or typically do uploads, uh, unless you're going direct to S3, which is, well, I'll talk about in a bit, Uh, you do a post request, right? Multi-part form upload. And the problem with that with LiveView is now your uh, load balancer may load balance that post to another server on your cluster. And now your file that's uploaded is sitting on a different server on the network than the one your WebSocket is connected to. Uh, So it's tricky on like, okay, well, how do we solve that? And then you're like, well, I guess we could just chunk uploads over WebSockets. And that's kind of like this rabbit hole that Gary went down initially on like, let's just do this proof of concept, see if this is is viable and uh, and that's the work that Gary did. And there's more to do there because you don't want to just send text frames over WebSockets, you want to send binary blobs so you don't have to encode on the client and then decode on the server. Uh, Phoenix Channels has always supported binary WebSocket frames, but we never ourselves implemented a binary serializer in Phoenix. So that was like step one was kind of the plumbing to have binary encoding out of the box for the channel protocol built into Phoenix Gary did that initial work, and you could get bits up to a to a server over the same WebSocket connection. There's a bunch of security things on top of this to solve because if you're allowing someone to uh, start a process on the server and then write to a file descriptor, you want to make sure that that you can actually do that securely. Because if it just takes someone on the browser, being able to open up the JavaScript console and then start a bunch of file descriptors. Now you're, you have a uh, denial of service vulnerability. So there's all kinds of things that we had to solve and talk through. And Gary did a lot of that initial work um, and had a demoable solution, uh, but it required kind of doing things at the raw payload level. Like you could get a stringified payload and then read a file somewhere. But if you wanted to show like the files that you had selected, You've selected multiple files to upload. You had to then intercept that, populate some data in your live view. And there was a lot of this, like it was easy to get a demo. And then there was a lot of work to do to actually say, okay, how would I build a a full product that had uploads? Uh, Like a ton of work. And then initially we were like, well, this is all people need. They can write the plumbing on top. Uh, But then the more we tried to figure out how much was required, the more it was like, okay, we need to solve this. Uh, So half the time was like kind of solving the boring problem of what does a programming model look like for uploads that is like a pleasant experience to use and protects you from shooting yourself in the foot by like allowing an upload, but then not consuming the file and then leaking file descriptors and so on. Part of also doing all this is what does a programming model look like that allows the same abstraction to work for doing uploads from directly from the client to a cloud storage. That was one of our explicit goals from the beginning was, you know. In 2020, most people go direct to S3 or direct to what cloud, whatever cloud service they have. So, if it worked over Phoenix channels, we also wanted it to work for whatever cloud service you had. So, we had to make have a programming model that worked like in very different uh, domains, but also, you know, the code ha- make sure the code was very similar. Uh, so that was what took us. A year and a half or longer however however long it was to kind of arrive where we are now where it's a very simple um, set of functions that you call and you can select files it feels just like you're writing kind of like this uh, rich javascript uploader you get progress you can go directly to s3 you can go direct to the server you can go direct to the server do some bit munging and then go to s3 from the server and like all of that is at your fingertips without having to spend you know, months of time or weeks of time getting to all the work. So there's my long answer to this whole process.
1: I can appreciate the, the work that goes into that. Um, I had to, it was just, it's not quite about image uploads, but I recently implemented a Stripe API stuff with a Phoenix live view and all of the examples that they had, you know, were just fitting this other programming model that didn't fit live view anymore you know all their examples about you know making post requests and and get requests back to your server that da 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 <laughs> and so it did take a very long time for me to first understand the domain of the issues and then rewrite it to make sure that it worked within a programming model like live view uh with you know stateful sockets and still having a secure model too that took a lot of time so i can really appreciate like what goes into image uploads and on top of that like image uploads, you're right. Like everybody's going to need to use that in, in web applications at some point. Not everybody, but you know what I mean.
3: Yeah. And it's a much harder problem. Like this, this whole like direct to S3 upload, uh, trend, I'd say like I have, I have been like blissfully disconnected from direct to cloud uploads, but like the, it seems like the Twitter sphere is like, that's all you can do. It's like if <laughs> 2020. If you're not going to the cloud, you're, You're doing it wrong. So I'm like, okay, this must be like a very easily solved problem. So when I went down the path to add it to live view uploads, okay, let's integrate this, right? Let's, let's do this direct to cloud. It should just be like a copy paste JS snippet. There should be a blog on like, here's how to set your bucket. But it took me like, like weeks of time to get this working. It was outrageous. And now, now I understand why people have all these S3. I guess S3 in particular, I'm, I'm throwing shots at them, maybe other cloud providers, it's different, but just getting a bucket to accept files from my host was like an outrageous set of trial and error, like setting a course policy, but like, oh, this didn't work, try this one. So now I can understand why people out of desperation just like copy and paste some privilege that like makes the bucket world writable because they're like, <laughs> just trying to get it to work. And then they're like, okay, I'm going to do this temporarily. And then they forget about it. But going down that path is kind of what, Instilled in me, like how much uh, of a big deal this feature is for for people. Um, and we could talk about going forward, the kinds of things you could build that would be almost impossible for most people. But I think just in general, just getting like basic upload features beyond just a multi-part forum post is actually a much harder problem, even even today than than I was thinking it would be. At
0: least one of the things I was really impressed with. So first, I have to say that you put together a thirty-minute deep dive video that's posted on the blog uh, that takes you step by step through adding uploads to an app and then saying, hey, I can have the uploads come directly to my Phoenix app. And then, oh, I can do this extra little bit and now go to S3. What I really appreciate from that is, you know, it really does make it accessible. It helps me as a user who's coming to this, get the idea of like how to actually do this myself. And I really appreciate the time that you put into that because I know creating content like that takes time and effort. So I was just curious as to your perspective, like, do you feel like that this is important to, you know, have these kinds of videos to show these kinds of things to help people with adoption? Is that something that you've seen?
3: Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think that the the Twitter timeline clone and 15 minute video was, I mean, it was supposed to show people how to use the primitives, but that was like purely marketing, I'd say like it was like, get people excited teach them a little bit, but mostly just get people excited, spread the word on what's possible. And then this is this live view video was really just like, here's how to use it in video form, which I think is there's enough there. Like, I think reading a doc, giving you a documentation or guide, giving you all the information in the video, I think most people would not make it to the end just because there's enough nuance to cover there that you're like, okay, I can figure this out. So I think it is important. It does make it more accessible. Uh, and you're right, Mark, for mentioning, like it takes way more time than you think to make something like that. Um, I mean, it's pretty raw. Like I, you know, I try to do things in, in one take. So like I did a 30 minute recording. And by the way, I wanted this to be like a 10 minute video. And then by the time I was done, it was like, okay, well, this is going to be a 30 minute video. Um, that's just what it takes with like making sure like doing a full solution, like involving the database, the first time I recorded it, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm live coding it. I have like a general idea of what I want to do, but if you've watched the video, we need to consume the files after the database write was successful. But when I'm first was live coding this, like I just consumed them initially and like, you know, it worked, it demoed well. And I was like, okay, I'm done. Great. And then I realized like, okay, if, if the data was invalid and they didn't, it didn't persist, then you're also, now you're storing the files on the server. So then I had to like redo everything. I, mean, I could have cut the video up, but I don't know. Anyway, it's part of it is I, I think I could get more efficient about recording, but I kind of want it to be a single take to make it accessible. Like I'm not like if I was producing content like professional content or people were were paying for really slick produced content, it's one thing. But this is supposed to be like oh I I can do this too. So it, so there's value from my perspective in just seeing someone do it and seeing kind of the raw like I think you know, I messed up a couple times. Um, there's value in that, making it accessible. So it's something I would like to do more of, but you're right. It's like, that was, that was like probably three full days of work between trying to figure out what I wanted to do and then like hitting a bug. And um yeah, so I'm glad it's there, but it is a lot of work.
2: Well, I appreciate you putting in the work. I swear that the first two things that I do in like every side project is users. And then for some reason I always have to do uploads. So it's like these two hard problems mm-hmm. have now been solved by smarter than me people. And they're just, a breeze to set up now so thank you for that yeah you mentioned
1: users so like authentication goes into that too which yep. you know that that's another thing that's been recently solved uh, or or got some great tooling around now
0: yeah i i, I recently started a new phoenix app a uh, live view app uh for a project that i had this idea for and i was able to use the the auth gen and to just like flesh out like authentication, which, you know, does all the the stuff that's really tedious, which but is important, you know, like, how do I reset my password? How do I, uh, you know, confirm my email and doing all of that? It's Like, that's yeah. all there. And then with uploads, you really are getting to that point where you can just use some generators. And then the live view generators, uh, you can just start to flesh out, you know, a a site to get going very quickly. So, Chris, when I was looking at the changelog for the 0.15 release, there was another uh, feature in there that was listed as uh, open browser. And so I was like, I have to try this. So I, I tried it out. And so, like, you know, it takes in a view or an element and then it opens up whatever that rendered fragment is of HTML that's been written to like a temp file and opens up in the default browser. And I got to say, that is so handy you know, as opposed to the, why does this element not show up? And I just get this big blob of red HTML. It says it's not in here. And I'm trying to like, kind of, you know, parse it mentally and figure out like, what is that?
2: And then it gets truncated too, right? And so like, all you see is your navigation bar, dot, dot, dot. You're like, dang it. (laughs) Yeah. So I'd love to hear anything about that that you can share.
3: Yeah. Unfortunately, um, or I don't have the, the GitHub username or, or name. So that was a pull request. So community member, um, I'll have to add it to the show, show notes. So it's fully on someone um, hitting this frustration and saying, you know what? I can make this better. Um, so yeah, they, they sent up a PR and that was all it took. So yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with everyone. Uh, even like the LiveView test suite, whenever I get a failing test, if it's within our integration tests, I am like poking around like, okay, this giant blob of markup mm-hmm. Something is something is not matched here. Uh, and it's definitely a pain. So the, the testing library is super helpful and like where it will tell you, oh, I didn't find an input with this name. Uh here are the things I found. And if it's a big uh markup structure, you're like, okay, it's it's telling me it's somewhere in here, but it's it's incredibly difficult to see. So yeah, someone here, we got the link here. Leandro uh sent this pull request and yeah, that was all it took. So power of open source.
2: Yes, the beauty. Nice, thank you. I watch a lot of the issues come in. I know there's like, there's a lot of like bugs that come through. There's there's sometimes there's like questions and sometimes there's even feature requests. Like where do you draw the line between like, if you have an idea, I want to improve live view. I have this idea. Where would you put the line between like, maybe we should talk about it before you just go put all this work in up front. And the other side of the line, which is like, Oh, that's great. Just do a PR. Like how do people know?
3: Yeah. They should reach out on IRC or Slack first. We, typically don't take any feature requests on the issue tracker. We say as much in the issue template, but it still doesn't stop folks from doing feature requests. And in this case, I think uh, I forget, I think that per request just came through with an implemented. So the other side of the coin is like, if you don't mind uh, doing the work and having it rejected, then you could risk going up front and just having it shrink wrapped because uh, I will say, yeah, I don't want, I don't want to encourage people to do this, but just being honest here, I will say that that may be a better avenue for success if the work is already done. Uh, Because my initial uh my initial reaction, and Jose is different. He's a he's incredible in multiple regards, but for me, sometimes I I can only focus on so many things at once. Uh, So Jose is much more receptive on issue trackers. Uh, I don't know how he does it, but uh with trying to get uploads done, I'm heads down and I'll see an email come through for an issue and like I can't even open it or look at it because I know that it will deflect like if it's a bug or if it's something I have to investigate or if it's even a request, I have to think in my head, like, you know, load in my brain everything that is required to figure out uh, how to analyze this question. So for me, it's, uh, I try, I actually avoid uh, looking at things until I clear my plate. Um, so in that regard, if someone wants to, up a proposal and they're like oh by the way here it's done Uh, that might be a better success than asking me hey what about this I mean my initial reaction to almost every feature request is no and then like it's like no but try to convince me um, (laughs) if that makes any sense Uh, so I will say you probably should reach out on Slack or IRC ask me about it and then like I said if I'm hesitant initially it's because one you like you have to be for shepherding an open source project like you can't just do everything because you have to maintain that for one So there is a high bar for, like, does this make sense to be here? And people need to be willing to hear, like, no, I don't want to allow what you're wanting, but I will allow the APIs so that you can do what you want and then release that as a library. So part of it is um, not just outright no, but, like, let me hear about what you're trying to solve. And then if I can just do the minimal amount of work that would would allow you to solve that, then to me that's sometimes more ideal than just adding everything to, to the library, if that makes sense. Yeah, for sure.
1: So earlier we talked about productivity and getting projects up and running. And you, Chris, you're able to spend, you know, 20, 25% of your time at Dockyard, you know, working with your, your fellow Dockyard folks, you know, working on real client projects. And, and I've got to imagine, you know, not all of them are greenfield projects, but, you know, they're, they're real world problems that everybody's working with. When you're starting a project today, I figure you'd use LiveView and Phoenix and Elixir and all that kind of stuff, but there's those other things too that we, sometimes we need to help get us a, a site up and running. Some something like a CSS framework or some JavaScript maybe eventually. Now we're eating away at some of those needs, but you know what what do you typically go to, you know, when when you come to these new projects or client projects? What's your go-to stack?
3: So beyond like Elixir Phoenix or just like Okay, so I can answer. I can answer this in a couple of ways. So, so at Dockyard, I don't make any front end decisions because we actually have purely front end teams that do. Like, actually, we have HTML and CSS engineers and JavaScript engineers. We we even split the front end. So it's all to say that I don't make those decisions. But personally, I'm a big fan of Tailwind. Um, I'm a recent convert. Um, it seems like you, initially you're like, I don't know about this, uh, but that's <laughs> my go to now. And uh, I'm not making any promises here, uh, but the, yeah, you, you heard it here first, folks. I do think that um, that will probably include Tailwind in the Phoenix Generators and not too far future, whether that's controversial or not. Anyway, that, that's a conversation that I just started amongst the Phoenix team, but uh, I'm super like, yeah, for the listeners, like Tailwind is like a utility first CSS framework and it makes people think like, oh, your markup is just like this puke of class names Mm -hmm. But actually having used it, uh, it has like resonated with me internally. So this is another brain dump and I'll try to condense this. So one thing I've learned with LiveView, for me personally, so I don't want to speak for everyone, I think what React showed us and what I used in LiveView was co-locating your code and your template code together. So your app code and template code, living together, co-locating that does something pleasing to my brain. And when I'm like modifying code, they're right there next to each other. Um, like I don't have to jump around to a separate file. So I feel mm-hmm. like Tailwind does that same thing for me, like uh, kind of along, among that same theme where your CSS classes are just like implicit state, like everywhere. And you have no idea when you change a class name, like what effect that's going to have on the system at all. Like you have to go look, it could be anywhere in any file. So I feel like collocating the CSS utilities directly in the markup, even though it makes your markup look potentially like a mess uh, is, is such a value add actually having used it that now I'm, I'm a big fan. So from the CSS side, that's kind of my, my go-to JavaScript side. It's since I, since I jumped on the live view thing, it's been a long time since I've written any like framework specific code. Um, I was a big react fan. That's kind of my go-to. Uh, I missed the Vue.js uh, um, trend. So I actually know <laughs> nothing about it. So I will say react was what I was using, uh, but I'm out of date there as well. Like the whole Effect system, like use effect. Yeah. I have no idea what that means when people show it yeah. to me. So, um, that's kind of my go to. And then beyond that, um, I'm really never allocated anything non Elixir. So if I have to make a choice server side language, then I'm not, I'm not on those projects. So I'm, I'm fortunate <laughs> or privileged in that regard.
1: Yeah. So there's, a, there's another. Piece of tooling there that uh, I, I think that a lot of Elixir folks have been gravita- gravitating towards. Uh, you mentioned that you missed the Viewboat, and there's another tool that's come out even more recently than that, uh, inspired by View. So it, it looks a lot like View, but without a lot of that framework uh, weight or feel to it, uh, and that's called Alpine JS. I'm sure you've heard about it.
3: Oh, yes. Okay. So that's, yeah. So yeah. actually, thanks for mentioning that. So that is my go-to. So I should have, uh, oh, okay. I don't know how I missed that plug, but I will say <laughs> this is, so this is going to be a selling point for Alpine. I would say that Alpine is such a light and unobtrusive choice that it didn't even cross my mind as like this upfront decision yeah. Um, yeah. in that regard. So yeah, today, if I have to do, if I have to do anything client related within my Live View app, that's what I reach for. Um, so, thank you for bringing that up because i would have been i would have missed missed that mentioning that and I, I talked with uh uh Caleb, who' is the author of that for like an hour or two when I was trying to like understand how to make sure uh Liveview and Alpine played well together. He basically uh solved things extremely well so anytime you need like u i specific things that should happen instantaneously on the client that's definitely what I reach for and i've I've implemented like a autocomplete search with it on top of live view. Um so I've done some non trivial things with it and, and again this is like you're co locating now your JavaScript mm-hmm. in your markup, um, but only yeah. where needed. So it definitely is something I'm I'm a big fan of.
0: I must say I've also become a convert to that that stack. And like it, David is the one who introduced me to this idea, it's called the pedal stack, where it's Phoenix, Elixir, Tailwind, Alpine JS, and LiveView.
1: Pedal, I like it. <laughs> yeah,
0: but but I I agree. You know, like there has been a big value of just one. I I would spend hours of time just kind of fiddling trying to improve the a view, like the presentation of something. And I'm not, I don't have designer skills, right? And so I'd spend all this time to make it marginally less crappy, as opposed to like, oh, I can just take something that looks good and then tweak it from there. Uh, so and then I also like the Alpine JS approach where you know, you are writing, it's kind of JavaScript, like a, I just want to, but you're not even like writing like script tag script, right? But it's also co-located right there. And I, I think that's a great point because, you know, you just use it to say, hey, when I click this thing, the little nav menu should pop open and live view shouldn't really be involved with that level of a presentation change. So yeah, I, I'm glad to hear that that's something that you've, uh, you've also seen as a, something valuable there. And we, uh, we previously talked with Caleb Porzio uh, about Live Wire and how it was inspired by Live U. and he talked about working with you and you being accessible and you know saying, "Hey, let's make this work." So I think that's also just great that you know we're able to kind of reach across the aisle, as it were, to our <laughs> PHP friends.
3: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, he. Uh, I listened to that episode, so yeah, I'm glad glad you had him on, and it's cool to see kind of his story and uh, him being inspired by the things we're doing, and then and us picking up. His work and, and and being happy users of it, so it's been it's worked out both ways. I think really well.
0: So one of the things we talked about with Caleb was, and this is something that I know there's also I, I don't recall the name of it right now, but it's the Rails-like approach to kind of what we're doing with Live View and you know Live Wire, was inspired by it, but it's not currently using WebSockets. So kind of in my view, it's like it gets eighty percent of the business value benefit of just. You know, not having to write all the different layers of you know the uh, the controllers and the serializers to JavaScript going down to the front end, and you know, just kind of flattening the whole stack and getting a lot of business value there. I'm just curious as to what you've seen, uh, maybe from client work or just uh, people you communicate with in the community. Just uh, what what kind of benefits are you seeing there?
3: Yeah, I think the boring business value case is what kind of excites me the most. Um, I mean, so I think you know it's not like any one thing. It's just, you know, like one of the lightning talks at one of the Elixir conferences this past year was just a a healthcare company that uh, that team had to put together like a uh, post-surgery client uh, or post-surgery patient um, progress report. So it was just like, you know, basically multi-step forms, you know, choose your own adventure based on your answers, but they were able to do it with live view and they just delivered it like with insane speed. So it wasn't even like anything flashy, no sexy business, you know, use case. It was just like, they had this state. And if you've ever done multi-step forms, like, you know, if you come from any stateless HTTP background, like there are plugins to do it. Um, But like you shove everything in the database, you know, then the page navigates to a new page and you load that back from the database and then they make some new selections. So like, it's a very different model than just like, okay, when they click this, you just, you know, do some business logic and render the next thing in live view and, you know, you can update the URL, but you don't have this, you, you get to ditch a lot of this mindset of, you know, make a new route to match on what step they're on. Uh, so I think kind of these boring problems that are able to let people get to market like incredibly fast, but get all the features that they want is what excites me the most. And what we're seeing with client work, first I can't talk specifically, but just one example from actually a, a meeting I had today with a client, we're still in the very early phases of, building the product, uh, so we don't have, we haven't been delivered, like, the CSS HTML from the design team. It's just, we're back in, programmers writing back in things right now, doing our thing, um, but we wanted to, we wanted to surface kind of our progress, like, here's here's the things we've been working on, versus like, uh, and these clients have been fantastic, but, you know, I don't know if, if consultants will understand, like, if you're in this initial phase where you, you haven't, like, married all the work together yet, so, like, your progress reports are, like, you know, they see the commits, but you're like, yep, we're still writing code. But like, you know, there's nothing to show visually for it. You're in this weird spot where you're like, you know, we, we're doing a lot of stuff and the test pass, but the clients can't see that. Um, so we actually, one of our engineers like slapped together uh, a LiveView UI on top of this kind of stateful system we built. We do plan on using LiveView for the product, but like I said, we have no front end assets currently. We don't have the full user flows, but it was just like, we wrote this OTP application. It's doing a lot of complex things. And we put live view on top of it in an hour to demo, like basically this whole thing that we've been building. So you can imagine like, you know, we built this whole thing and then with pub sub and everything that was already there in the system, we just like put an interface on top of it. Um, so if we had the assets, like we could very easily have just built up like this full user flow and delivered a product. So I think those kinds of like fast iteration, basically the, the whole thing that has resonated with developers from the beginning, like getting to market quickly, iterating quickly, I think um, is what we can what we can push. What we can also say, and then you can just you know go conquer the world and and scale versus like get to market and now rewrite everything. Uh, so yeah, there's my there's my rambling answer
0: to that. <laughs>
1: there's a there's a deeply satisfying part of of LiveView and and the productivity that uh, something like Live LiveView and LiveWire tries to get there. LiveView is like a very solid architectural design like it's it's based on otp another solid architectural design of things. And once you get a like a nice web application up and running with a lot of other tools, like you feel satisfied that the that it's up and running and then it works. But there's always that lingering feeling, at least for me personally. is like with other tools, I always feel like it's lipstick on a pig or something like that. You know, like you just know that it looks nice but you, you there's skeletons in the closet. Not to say that those that totally go away, but you get that suspicion that, that it's really bad underneath. I don't feel that way with, with live view. You know, I, I, I can feel that way with other, other tools and I can feel that way about my code, but, (laughs) but knowing that it's on something like live view and OTP, like I just, I, that, that feeling of, you know, that this is a house of cards just goes away because I know it's solid. And that's, that's been really satisfying, um, for me. And then also knowing, you know, that, yeah, on top of that, I'm not trade usually with that, you'd have to trade off things like productivity, uh, and, and speed of, uh, to deploying, you know, it, you don't have to do those trade-offs with, with this. So it's, it's been incredibly satisfying to work with, with live view and then seeing other, other projects like live wire come up, you know, uh, recognizing that business value to getting up and. Uh, running really quickly you know that that resonates with folks definitely for sure so i'm curious i don't want to broach the subject yet but i'm curious we we, so we've talked about uploads uh we've talked about you know generally feeling pretty happy with it and go to stacks what what what's the next big thing we didn't talk about live dashboard but you know we touched on the phoenix generators with the uh, the auth stuff too yeah. Well, what's, what's left of the big tool set? You know, are there any missing tools in the, in the Elixir ecosystem and the, in the Phoenix ecosystem?
3: Yes, that's a very good question. So, yeah, so I, <laughs> I do have, uh, yeah, something, yeah, I don't know. There's something potentially further off the horizon that uh, I don't have fully formed, can talk about it. I think for, for live view specifically, uh, I do think that the work that uh, Marlis, if you've seen the Surface project uh, that Marlis has put together, it's basically I mean, a, a layer on top of Live View that, yeah. that it's like, uh, I will say like Live View has first class components, but Marlis has basically built a preprocessor that um, does some almost like uh, property checking. Like if you use, uh, you declaratively say like, this is, these are the assigns for my my component. And then at compile time, it's going to be like, Oh, you had an assign here that uh, I know doesn't exist. So there's some really neat features he's done. Uh, he also has a, a different template syntax than live EX that like the shorthand component syntax I'm a huge fan of. It's like, so components in live view are great, but if you want to like an app that i built recently was just like, uh, I wanted to build a, a tailwind uh, table. So like, I wanted to be like, you know, table tag here but like make it Mm -hmm. awesome so basically my tailwind classes what I've wanted to do lately is my tailwind classes could be should be specified in just a stateless component somewhere and then I only have to write those once so I kind of get like the best of both worlds where I don't have the same thing repeated everywhere and uh, markup everywhere but I can just say table Uh, but to then convert that to a live component call which is all surface is doing internally but uh, in surface you could just say like capital t table and there's your html table uh, but in live view, proper, you you have to do like the live component, pass your socket in, and then pass a the component name. Um, and it just gets very noisy. So, like I tried to do that, but then like the fact that it was a just table markup with rows became lost in the the syntax of LiveX. So I think that would be um, kind of marrying together uh, some of the work that Marlis has done would be fantastic in my book. Uh, he's done, really a fantastic job, like his documentation that he has, and he has some really neat features uh, coming up that I don't think he's, he's announced yet that I'm like, yes, I, I want to be able to do that. Uh, So I think stay tuned there as far as, you know, it's not really like a, it's like an evolution on what we have on the plumbing that we have currently. So it's like not really the next big thing in the Phoenix world, but I will, I do think it will be massive value add uh, if you're tracking the live use space. Even beyond like this sy- syntactically nicer, like there's a lot of neat features that that Marlis has done that I think will make uh live view type applications more accessible. He's doing a lot of like documentation generation uh and and whatnot like here's here's a component and here's the things you can pass to it, and here you know here's how callers can use it so that's kind of on the near horizon, just a small matter of doing all the work, but no fortunately, Marlis has actually done a lot of the hard work so uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth, so I need to figure out, like, what makes sense. Like, uh, I've kind of been heads down with uploads, so I haven't really been tracking the surface space directly for a while. So I don't want to just say, like, oh, we're going to It's not like we're just going to, like, merge everything in, in one go. But I do think he's done some fantastic work there, and I want to marry uh, our efforts together in the near term. In longer term, you know, I, I always, like, it always seems like, like, what is next? Um, And then, like, s- something we choose to solve uh, organically ends up being like another year at least of work. So we'll see there. I don't, am not willing to talk about much, but I'm sure uh, a year from now we'll be, we'll be chatting about something. And one thing I did want to mention, um, this is like a smaller feature of uploads, but something I think could be really powerful is right now we don't give you access to the byte stream coming over the wire. So we chunk, um, if you're doing direct to server uploads, we chunk those uh, bits, binary blobs, over the WebSocket. Um, and you can get progress events, but you consume that when it's done. So you can get all of the blobs together, and you consume that file, do whatever you want with it. But we consume them, those chunks as we go. So one thing we want to provide is the ability for all that the upload does internally is accumulate those chunks. And then when the client reports the number of bytes that it said it was going to send you, we just send that file to you, and you consume it. So we want to give uh, instead of writing to a file descriptor, we want to just pass off as an option, be able to have you pass off, uh, get those blobs into your own your own app code. Um, so imagine doing things like uh, streaming parsers. So if you wanted to have someone drop a gigabyte file of whatever data and then you streaming parse at CSV and you're showing live results on the page as you're consuming that file. Um, we can absolutely do that. And like, it's not like everything's there to do that. It's just giving you the API to do it. So I think those kinds of things really excite me because like, I can't imagine doing that on another platform. So imagine like, imagine you want to build a YouTube like platform, which is a pretty tall order. Like let's ignore the scale for a moment. Just imagine, even though we'd be great for it. Right. But just ignore all the things that come with YouTube, but you you want to build a video platform and your task as a development team to generate thumbnails uh, as the file is being uploaded right? So like, you know, instead of having to wait uh, an hour for this giant upload, and then you're generating metadata information, imagine if you could just parse that byte stream and do something with those bytes. Like, you should be able to do that with LiveView, like, trivially, you know, quote unquote, like, I don't know what, you know, video encodings, I'm not, I'm clueless about, but if there's a parser to do a streaming look at at a stream of bytes and give you information, you should be able to, with LiveView, just call it and, and yeah. lift that information into the UI. So those kinds of things, solving those kinds of problems will become, like, trivial for people to do. And, like, imagine trying to solve that without kind of this, this kind of plumbing. I can't imagine, like, the amount of effort it would take and the, the size of the team to, to do something like that. Uh, so those are the kinds of things that really excite me and, like, what small teams are going to be able to deliver with these kind of features. So that's, like, a access to the byte stream is going to be, you know, a feature that uh, after we shipped uploads is what we ship next just to kind of get it out as soon as possible. But it shouldn't be very much work
0: to get that, get that out. That's really exciting. So one of the things you mentioned, there was this uh, idea of small teams. And that's actually something that I feel I experienced myself with LiveView. It's like, I think back to when I was a came to Rails, and it's the earlier days of Rails. And I felt like that was this move to where you know, the single developer could create a product or a service and deliver something. And then since then, we've kind of shifted and just things have organically kind of grown to where you have the spa. And it's a lot more work. And you usually have teams that are dedicated to the different focus. And I feel like when you combine things like Tailwind and Alpine and Live View, I feel like it's getting back to that point where I as a single developer or a very small team can deliver something again and that is really exciting for me. It's empowering. I'm just curious about like if you've kind of seen that as well. Yes,
3: basically, yeah, everything you said resonates perfectly with me. You summed it up probably better than I could, but I think, you know, I think elixir like this is the this is the, I think one of the most important things it can provide from my perspective. And it goes even beyond kind of the the code perspective we just talked about, even from like the deployment standpoint. And I don't want to throw I don't want to throw like containerization under the bus and, and everything, but I will say um, part of what you just described is kind of the way I feel about deploying Elixir in general. Like, like I just had a, t- a conversation with like, how are we going to scale this, this uh, platform that we're building for a client? And I'm like, well, we just, we just add X amount of servers that that meets the scale that they, they want to meet and we're done. Like, um, you know, th- <laughs> we were, I was, I basically had to push back against using Kubernetes and setting up um, auto scaling logic And to me, like, that's, like, I feel like I'm a crazy person trying to, like, everything, like, I'm the the one person in the room that's, like, no, we don't need to, like, have auto-scaling rules. Like, what do you expect? Like, okay, half a million users. Like, let's say WebSocket connections. Like, okay, great. Like, we can calculate how many servers we need from that and, like, and deploy them and, like, we're done. So I think, like, all across the paradigm of web development from, and beyond web development, from web development, whether it's, like, writing app code, Uh, writing front-end things that do rich interactions and deploying that, I feel like it removes a lot of layers. Um, So uh, especially from like an auto-scaling perspective, like it's like uh, I can't think of a use case that I've been a part of, and granted, I'm sure they exist, that I've been like, yes, we need some auto-scaling logic here. Strictly from Elixir, to be clear.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So one other concept or thing I've seen in the community is a lot of people who are you know active members of the community, or at least they're you know professionally working with Elixir and Phoenix, some of them you know still seem to be slow to the idea that that Live View is here to stay. I, I was asked recently by one uh, friend, it's like, so do you think you know Live View is really here to stay? And I'm like, yeah, you know, and I'm like trying to you know advocate for this this mindset shift. And I'm just kind of curious, are you seeing that too? Where some people just kind of seem to not get it and. I'm not sure if they kind of view it as um, maybe a threat to kind of their mental model of how it works, or maybe they have been very focused on front end spa kind of work and maybe they view it as a threat. I don't know. Uh, what have you seen there?
3: Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot of naysayers. Uh, I do think, you know, we, we have won some people over as well, but I think uh, this kind of, this kind of uh, like, oh, that that's a terrible idea. Like probably like what the tailwind author has gotten where it's like, it goes against conventional wisdom. It seems like a terrible idea, but like we showed with wide view, like when I presented it initially, I think I had like a, a Phoenix towing, like a, it was like towing a car that broke. I don't know. It was like a horse and buggy analogy where people are like, you're going backwards. Um, so I knew people would, I knew a lot of people would hate the idea, but we've since shown that like, it can be better than a single page app in some cases. So I think, basically competing on our merits, uh, it's undeniable for certain types of applications that that it's a bad choice. You may disagree with the choice, but I think it's a much easier sell if you're like, this is just better. Uh, especially like, imagine like just even uploads is a good example. Like there's so much crap that you have to deal with. Now, like I would use LiveView just for uploads, like just to, just to have that solved. Um, but yeah, there's still naysayers. I do think that uh, it seems to like it's grown much beyond the idea of live view has grown much beyond. I could have thought as far as like other communities being inspired by it. So I am encouraged by that. The naysayers like don't concern me anymore. Cause I think enough people have been enthusiastic about this. So like, really my only concern at this point is like, I have seen multiple different, like, I think, I don't know if it's Twitter or elsewhere. Like people have been asking, like, since this idea is like catching on in other communities people have been asking like what are these types of applications called so like really my biggest fear at this point would be like if we end up with some dumb name like isomorphic javascript apps like you know if like i'm not going to claim that like i made this like everything i came up with is original but like it would pain me if like if liveview birthed this trend that became some like ridiculous name like that had no meaning but i don't know what the other than like you know It is kind of hard to like wrap up like what, it you know, it's like a server rendered app, but, but it does all these things. So I I do think that I understand the question, but like, I'm like, if this even becomes like a server isomorphic app or something, then I'm like, no, like, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, anyway, in general, yeah, I'm, I'm encouraged by the feedback, uh, but there are definitely probably just as many people that uh, discount it that, that it, that it resonates with.
0: Well, we're coming up on our time and I really appreciate you uh, being able to come and, and share your time with us. So you've already kind of touched on some of the interesting ideas of where things might go in the future. I guess one other question I had is like that, and maybe this isn't really for you, but uh, for the contributor who wrote our open browser, a little helper, I'd love to see that for like non-live view too, right? That'd be just nice to, you know, for static rendered pages.
3: Yeah, that's... Uh, uh common request has been like, wow, these live view test helpers are so much better than, than like the Phoenix, (laughs) uh, contest. Uh, can we just add those there? Uh, so the answer is like, it, it'd be a reasonable amount of work to do, but not like, you know, we've, we've solved it with live view. Uh, so the only reason I'm not doing it really is because I don't want to do it. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't prioritize that versus other things right now. And I'm not going to say it feels like going backwards, you know, Phoenix, you and the dead views and controllers are not going anywhere probably ever. Well, no, ever. I mean, right. I'm never going to be like, okay, Phoenix two, no controllers, but <laughs> um, to me it's, it's less of a priority to do. So if someone would like to look into that work, I would, I, I would be open to adding that, but there's a lot of things going on behind the scenes with Live view. Like it wouldn't just be a copy paste. It would be um, basically taking a, a Dom parser and putting it on Phoenix contest and uh, doing some similar things. But you're right. There are some niceties there that would be nice to have outside of LiveView.
0: And I guess the the last thing I'd like to say is I know as developers, sometimes we need to take a break, right? We need to step back from our computer and you know engage with people or just do something that's not computer time. I've observed you on Twitter sharing photos and progress reports of big woodworking projects that you're doing. And I'm just wondering, is this an area where you found a creative outlet to kind of step away and, and maybe you can talk a little about that.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I I really like to just build things and woodworking, especially lets me build things that are permanent as far, at least on the human lifetime scale, Uh, whereas software is very ephemeral. So like even like, especially in the consulting world, even the product world, right? Like 10 years from now, most things that you're working on, if they were lucky enough to get to market are probably going to be replaced, right? If you're so lucky to have your application become a legacy application that people hate to work on, then like you've done this amazing <laughs> achievement. Um, so I feel like, you know, I love building software, but it is something that's very ephemeral in nature. Uh, whereas like woodworking, like I build a hammer and like, I can give that hammer to like, like, when I die, like, maybe, like, either I gift it to someone in my family, right, or, like, or someone, like, at an estate sale will, like, be like, oh, look at this cool old hammer. And then, like, you know, a stranger buys it, and they can use it as a hammer. So, there's something very cool about that. And then, yeah, recently I built a, a band, homemade made bandsaw, which is, like, took a lot of my time, even though I could have bought one. But, like, I, I there also is something entrenched in my mind that like i like building things that build things so like (laughs) whether it's a open source framework that you can use to build a bunch of things apparently like i like building tools that you can use to build other tools uh, as well it turns out so i don't know
0: (laughs) that's awesome yeah i've kind of become convinced that uh, a lot of people in the computer space and in the software development space they it's a creative mindset right and we are creating things and i think that's just interesting that you kind of draw that comparison of you know, creating something that can create things even in the physical world. So that's awesome.
2: Creating libraries for the physical world. <laughs> yep. That's also why I, I, I draw the
3: line at like, uh, I don't, I don't cross paths between like computers and, and woodworking. So like CNC machines, like all those things are really cool, but like, I don't want to like mix those worlds. So it's like, that's my time away from, <laughs> yeah. from moving bits around.
0: Well Chris thank you so much for your time for coming and joining us and sharing some of the updates and background into the recent Live View release. So congratulations on that. I know it's been a long time in the making and and I as a member of the community I really appreciate the effort that you and the team have put into it and even just going above and beyond with like the video that helps me understand how I can quickly add this and get these benefits. Like as I'm watching it and I've done multi-part forms and uploads. And I'm seeing it's like, oh, you're just doing click, click, click. I can do multiple forms and it's just streaming up and it works. That is so cool. I appreciate that.
3: Yep. And I, and I didn't mention in the video the, the accept option that you said, like I only want PNGs and JPEGs, the HTML attribute that we write to the file input will, will enforce the files that you can actually select at, in a user's UI. So anyway, there's a bunch of cool stuff
0: there. If people want to follow you online or maybe get in touch, or maybe they want to be a contributor, uh, where's the best way for them to interact?
3: Uh, Chris underscore, underscore McCord on Twitter, but uh, Slack or IRC is probably the best uh, real-time communication. I'm pretty much always there if I'm on the computer, so feel free to ping me.
0: Well, thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.
1: You know, we we were actually going to interview you about this interesting project you're working on called Atlas, but this live view stuff... <laughs>
3: that's actually that would be a fun interview because um because that's that was my first interaction with jose actually so the the cool story there is like as far as how to deliver feedback like obviously that was like completely against what he was trying to build with ecto like he had learned his lessons with active record so he first reached out to me and he was like hey like you know he was trying to deliver the feedback but he's like here's some like papers or books that you should read um so basically he gave me like a reading list but like in the nicest way possible and it was like it was like the i forget the it was like a domain driven design but like the the small version so like it had like the repository pattern and stuff in it so it was like it wasn't only like hey i have a different idea of how this should be it was like a conversation and oh by the way here's some reading material that i think would be helpful um so that's kind of our first touch point and then uh yeah so